0: Uh, we resume today uh, looking in our, our study of John, uh, John's gospel. And uh, since you're there in, in John chapter 4, where we're going to uh, resume this morning, uh, I thought it was interesting that a, a recent study, a heartbreaking study really, uh, showed that uh, only 18% of high school students are proficient in U.S. history. Anybody like to study history here? Uh, I know I'm a history buff, although the hands rise. But uh, most students, if you ask them to study history, it just becomes this jumbled uh, concept of people and places and then dates. Don't ask me to remember dates. Uh, That's usually their their attitude. But but only 18% of high school students are proficient in U.S. history. Another study performed by a a professor at Northeastern University found that over the past decade, uh, there has been a decline... Uh, history has been declining more than any other major among college students, even though there are more and more people attending college. Uh, and uh, this steep decline in history, uh, history majors, coincides with what was it that happened about 10 years ago? The Great Recession. Uh, and so these high school students who were going into uh to college at that point in time uh probably through their own desire and probably also through the, the counsel of their parents they were all encouraged not to study history study uh one of the what's known as the the STEM fields of for science technology engineering and math uh so there's been this huge increase uh in the number of uh S-T-E-M students uh, and jobs. Those majors doubled between the years of 2013 and 2017. Uh, And what was interesting, just to to kind of note uh, this decline in in history majors, I listened to this podcast this weekend. The commentator uh, made this connection that I hadn't thought of before, that there's been this radical decline in the study and understanding of history, while at the same time, what has happened to our nation over the last 10 years? Our nation has fragmented to such a degree uh, and there's no nothing unifying us. And I think to a great extent that is because we do not know our own history. Now, we as a as a country don't have anything in common with one another because uh, history has, has fallen off of the radar. And it's not something that people pay attention to anymore. And understanding our history helps us to properly grasp uh, the issues that we face today. Right. The problems that we have today, they were brewing 20 and 30 years ago. Uh, and when we understand history, we understand how the problems that we currently face got to where they are. And then what, what's the famous saying? That if those if those who do not learn from history are doomed to do what? To repeat it. So history teaches us. Uh, and this is so important just in, in our everyday worldview as Americans, but it's also of massive importance when it comes to understanding the Bible. When it comes to our faith as Christians, we are called to be a historic people, a people of the book, people who know our own history and the history of Israel. Because indeed, the Bible may have been one of the first books that records history for an instructive purpose. That those things were written down in Scripture for us. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul writes, he says, Now these things took place, speaking of uh, what took place in the, the Exodus and in Numbers, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then Romans fifteen four that for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So not only are the tools uh, or scripture, a, is it a tool to instruct us so that we don't fall into the sinful patterns of people who have gone before us, but it also is intended to do what? To give us hope. So if you're looking for hope, go and read the Old Testament. That's why it was written and recorded for us. And as we continue our study of John's gospel this morning... We come to a portion uh, in which an understanding of history is really going to help us. To kind of to zoom back out a little bit, we're, we're reading through this gospel written by John the Apostle. And he, he was writing to persuade Jews living in the first century that Jesus was the Son of God and that they should believe in him for eternal life. Now, uh, John wrote this uh, purpose statement at the end of his gospel, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what we see is that that John was selective in what he included in his gospel and what he includes was included so that it could persuade. He wanted to convince the Jews of his time that they need to look to Jesus, to leave Judaism. He wanted them to see that the spiritual bankruptcy of the religious system that they had been practicing for years and years. He says, leave that and look to Christ. He is far superior. And so John is, in essence, holding up the supremacy and the excellence of Christ and Christianity, faith in Christ. And one of the, the primary persuasive tools that John uses in his gospel is conversations. Uh, and uh, he's going to use conversations between Jesus and other people uh, to speak truth uh, and to convey uh, this message and trying to persuade uh, the, his audience of who Jesus is. And in John chapter three, we saw Jesus speaking with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And then we saw another conversation at the end of John chapter three between John the Baptist and his disciples. Remember the, the disciples of John the Baptist were saying, hey, what are you going to do about Jesus competing ministry? And John says, I'm not going to do anything. He's greater than I am. He must increase. I must decrease. The conversations in John 3 were intended to elevate Christ. To show how important he is, how far superior, how excellent he is. And as we come now to John chapter 4, we're going to see another conversation. This time between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. Who's never named, but uh, within this conversation... Jesus is again going to be held up as the one who is superior, who is par excellence. And what I want to do this morning, we're just going to ultimately speak about verses 1 through 4, but I want to, I want to read through the, the whole conversation because it's important to have this framework and we're going to, we're going to circle around it over the next few weeks, uh, landing in different portions each week. But I, I want to get the, the lay of the land first. So read with me John chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ?" They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say Yet there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Like I said, we're only going to focus on verses 1 through 4, but it's important to get the, the full picture of what takes place when Jesus comes to this Samaritan town of Sychar. What we're going to see, even as we read this, is the superiority and the excellence of Christ. And that's, that's the, the point of this passage. And so, if that is the, the point, what, what is the... What are the details of that? What is it that makes Christianity so excellent? What is it that, if you take this passage, what is it from here that would convince a first century Jew that they need to forsake Judaism and look to Jesus in faith? What is it that makes Christianity and Christ superior to every other religion and every other worldview? And this morning what I would show you is that there are three credentials here that prove the excellence of Christianity and affirm our faith in Christ. Now, in the first credential is seen in verses 1 through 4. That salvation is offered by a sovereign God. That is one of the things that makes Christianity greater than other worldviews. Now, salvation is offered by a sovereign God. Uh, and verses 1 through 4 uh, in Chapter 4, they they give us the the background to the entire conversation of what is taking place that prompts Jesus to to go through Samaria. And as we saw at the end of John chapter 3, the ministry of Jesus is growing so that there's beginning to be conflict between uh, his disciples and the disciples of John. And ultimately, uh, it didn't escape the notice of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. The Pharisees begin to realize, hey, there's somebody who's an even bigger deal than John. Uh, and, uh, so the, when Jesus hears that the Pharisees are, are aware of his growing ministry, Jesus begins to say, alright, I need to transition to a different location. Uh, and so we, we have this growing ministry in verse one, and then there's this parenthetical statement in verse two, that although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples were baptizing. Because Jesus was was making and multiplying disciples, but he wasn't doing any of the baptisms. And why is that important? Why is that little detail recorded for us in Scripture? Additionally, why is it that Jesus didn't baptize anybody? It's a good question to ask. And I would say for for a couple of different reasons, uh, a couple of different possibilities. It's not necessarily clear here uh, in this passage. And and the first uh, option would be that but Jesus isn't baptizing because if he did that, his ministry would be exactly parallel with John the Baptist. He would be doing exactly what John did, and there's really nothing to distinguish him. But by, by Jesus saying, no, I'm not going to baptize, my disciples will baptize. They'll do what John the Baptist is doing, but I'm not going to do that. It shows that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist, but also by delegating the baptisms, Jesus is setting the precedent for baptism later on. Those disciples at that time, they're doing those baptisms in the name of Jesus. And what do we do today when we baptize somebody? I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize in the name of Jesus, even as his disciples did at that point in time. But I think the biggest reason that he, he didn't baptize anyone was to ensure that nobody would, would go and brag and say, I was baptized by Jesus himself that no one would feel that they had a superior spiritual standing above any other follower of Jesus because Jesus had baptized them. Uh, later on in the New Testament, the Corinthian church, factions had formed and divisions had, were created in the church based upon who baptized who. Uh, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, thank, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And if Paul is saying, don't don't brag about me being baptized uh, or you being baptized by me. You can imagine that some would have done the same thing about with regards to Jesus, if Jesus had been the one who was doing the baptisms. Uh, and so uh, Jesus isn't doing the baptisms, but his disciples are. And when he understands that there is this uh, awareness now with the Pharisees, uh, Jesus, knowing the plan of God, he knows that he's going to be bumping heads with the Pharisees from this from this time forward and knowing that, hey, this isn't the time for that confrontation. Jesus departs from there and he's going to go back up to Galilee. He was in the southern part of Israel in Judea and he's going to go back up to Galilee. And then in verse four, there's this little statement it says that then he had to pass through Samaria. And that statement is, is in one sense true just because of where Samaria is located. So Judea is the southern part part of israel uh, where jerusalem is located Uh, and then there's another kind of a jewish uh, hub around the sea of galilee in the north and in between those two regions is the land of samaria and so the the fastest way to get from judea in the south to galilee in the north is to walk straight uh, and to go right up to uh, galilee and this is the, this was the common path of Jews at the time. Everyday common Jews would have taken that path because when you're walking everywhere, you take the shortest route. Amen? Right? We're all pragmatists when it comes to walking. What's the most direct path I can take? Uh, but, but those devout Jews, the rabbis, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of Israel, would have never taken that path. They would have never lowered themselves and walked through... Samaria. They would have either done one of two things. They would have gone uh, all the way to the Mediterranean coast and then walked along the coast west of Samaria or they would have crossed the Jordan River which is to the east, crossed the river, walked north and then crossed back over the river just to avoid Samaria. And if Jesus is a rabbi, and indeed John chapter 3 as he's correcting the rabbi of Israel, Jesus is held up as the preeminent rabbi. If Jesus is going to be a well-known rabbi in Israel, he can't just walk right through Samaria. But what are we supposed to make of this decision that Jesus makes not to walk around, but to walk through Samaria? And we've encountered this little word in, in verse 4 before, that he had to, by, by divine decree. He had to do this. This is what God was willing him to do. Even though there was hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, this is what God was calling Jesus to do. But we can also ask, why, why was there all of this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans? What is it that they were, uh, that created conflict between them? This is a, a little bit of a, where history is important. If you, if you guys turn back in your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 17, and it goes beyond that, but we'll pause in Second Kings 17. Goes all the way back to uh, to the time of King Solomon, uh, and actually Solomon's son Rehoboam, and the kingdom of Israel splits uh, during the time of Solomon's son. The the northern ten tribes uh, rebel against Rehoboam, and they uh, go and form their own kingdom, what would be known as the Kingdom of Israel. And then the southern kingdom of Judah is formed, that the southern tribes. Uh, stay with Rehoboam. Uh, And so now there's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the first king of Israel is a guy by the name of Jeroboam. Uh, And then the the first king of the southern kingdom of Judah is, his name is Rehoboam. And my question to God is, God, couldn't you have made that a little bit less confusing by giving more distinct names uh, at that point in time? But uh, the, the key to all of this is when the kingdom splits, Jeroboam as the king says, I can't have all of my people going back to Jerusalem to worship. If they do that, they're going to go back and follow the king of Judah. And so Jeroboam does something that is going to plague the northern kingdom of Israel for their entire existence. Jeroboam says, I can't have the people going back to Jerusalem to worship, so I'm going to create two places of worship here in the northern kingdom. He does one in in Dan and another one in Bethel. And then those two cities, he establishes the worship of Yahweh. But what also creeps in is the worship of the, the local gods, the worship of Baal. And so the northern kingdom is forever plagued with idolatry because of what Jeroboam has chosen to do. And so fast forward 200 years after Jeroboam and we come to, to 2 Kings chapter 17. Look at me at verse 21. This is after the judgment of the northern kingdom of Israel or explaining it when he had torn Israel from the house of David. They made Jeroboam, the, the son of Nebat king and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. And they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets, So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And so what we have is Israel, because of their idolatry, was taken away uh, and destroyed by God and cast into exile. And they were conquered by a people known as the Assyrians. Uh, And the Assyrians had a foreign policy that was kind of unique. Uh, And one that, uh, if, if you think about it, when you go in and conquer a land, you have to then control and govern those people. Well, how do you keep them under control? How do you make sure that those people don't rebel against you the second your army goes to to conquer somebody else? And what the Assyrians decided to do, what their foreign policy was, is that when they conquered somebody, they would take people from one part of their empire and transplant them somewhere else. Uh, And they would do that because if you're stripped from part of your family uh, and taken somewhere else, you're less likely to rebel. Because, hey, you rebel over here, I kill your family who's still over there. That was their foreign policy. And if you look at verse 24 there in 2nd Kings 17. So the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So the Israelites were scattered and the Assyrians brought in Gentiles what began to happen is the Gentiles began to intermarry with the Israelites who were left there in the land. And this became the group that the Jews referred to as the Samaritans. So the Jews, looking at the Samaritans, they would say, hey, you are you're half-breeds. You've intermingled with the Gentiles. You're no longer a Jewish people. But the Samaritans said, no, no, we are Jews. And so that's that's the, the core of this disagreement. The Samaritans say, we are Jews, and the Jews are like, no, you're Gentiles. Additionally, there's differences between uh, their scriptures. The the Samaritans only built their worship upon the first five books of the Old Testament, when the Jews also uh, believed and taught from what's known as the the prophets and the writings. The, the, The northern kingdom, the Samaritans also, began to create their own places of worship. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim, right outside of Shechem, right close by to where all of this is taking place. Uh, and it just to, to throw gas on the fire, in the year 128 B.C., the Jews went up and they destroyed the Samaritan Temple at Mount Gerizim. So what we have here, there is a long-standing feud between the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet, by God's design, Jesus is going to walk through Samaria. That he had to, and that that was those little words he had to. Again, that's a it's a powerful Greek word meaning that this is a divine decree. We've seen the word before in John chapter three verse eight, and then again in verse fourteen in John three, where Jesus says, "And as Moses was lifted up, uh, well, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must there's our word, so must the Son of Man be lifted up." This is what is. Absolutely necessary. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to walk through Samaria on this occasion. And it wasn't because his options were limited, or it wasn't because this is the fastest route. This is because this is God's will, God's intention. And again, this is what makes Christianity excellent, superior to other religions. We have a God who is sovereign and who plans to save his people. It is God's desire to save a people for himself, even... From among those people who hate him, even from among uh, people that his people hate, (laughs) even among the, the lowest of the low, God has a desire to save the God who is directing all of human history according to his will and purposes is going to save people. That is his desire and that is his intention. And Jesus is going through Samaria, not just to save one woman, but remember, what was the net result at the end of this conversation? This, this whole town of Sychar, what, what is their profession of faith? They come to realize that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That is God's intention here. We're seeing the, the beginnings of a salvation of an entire town. And it begins with Jesus submitting to the sovereign will and the sovereign plan of God. I love what uh commentator had uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse says uh, compares this detour by Jesus to a soldier who returns from overseas and travels from San Francisco to his home in Philadelphia. And on his way home to Philadelphia, he goes to Miami. You say, well, why are you, why are you going to Miami to get to Philadelphia? He says, because my fiance is there. No, I, I go because the one that I love is there in Miami and I need to, to be with her. And that is what we see here. The decision of Jesus to walk through Samaria, motivated by love, to save his people there. They don't know it yet, but they will come to faith in Christ. There's the first excellency within Christianity, the, the, the greatness and the superiority of Christ, that we have a, a sovereign, loving God who is working to save his people. That's the first credential that makes Christianity excellent. And the, the second we see, uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, It's a little bit different way of viewing things. The second credential I would give to you is this, that salvation is offered to everyone without qualification. And we see this, not necessarily in a particular verse in John chapter 4, but we see this when we begin to look at John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 together. And now we're going to read all of... No, I'm just kidding. We're we're not going to do... uh, We're not going to read all of that. Uh, but, But I would point backwards and think... So John is being selective in what he is telling us. And he's writing to persuade us. And he chose the order of how he's going to arrange all of this. And he puts these two conversations, one conversation between a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he puts that conversation immediately before this conversation with the Samaritan woman. And I think what we are intended to do is see uh, and contrast the differences between these two individuals because they're going to, to tell us something about the gospel. They're going to tell us something about the nature of faith in Christ. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says about this uh, contrasting of these two uh, individuals. He says, It is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus this ruler of the Jews and the simple Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status, whatever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was a highly moral and she was immoral. He had a name. She is nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation she, who had no reputation, came at noon. And Nicodemus came seeking, and the woman was sought by Jesus. And as we see these two individuals, it appears that they have absolutely nothing in common, right? They're like, they, they couldn't pick two people who were more different. And it seems that they have no common ground, but when we, when we think back to even what we looked at last week in Psalm 14, Every individual, every one of us has common ground in our, our sinfulness. As I said last week, we're all spoiled milk. We are all sinful. We are all in need of a Savior. And so we see this, whether you are an outwardly rich Jewish man or you are an outwardly immoral Samaritan woman, they have need of salvation. Both of them need Christ. Nicodemus shows us that there's no person who can rise above the need for salvation. There's nobody who's so good who can earn their way into heaven and say, I have this. I have accomplished it. Nobody elevates themselves to that degree. Indeed, every sinner, every person must be born again if we are to enter into the kingdom of God. That's what we see in John chapter 3. And if John chapter 3 focuses on, hey, there's nobody uh, who elevates themselves in, The Samaritan woman, what we're going to see in John chapter 4, is that there's no person too low for salvation. There's no person who is uh, unable to be saved. There's no person who is unable to be redeemed. There is no sinner who has gone too far. Any sinner, every single person, can be saved through faith in Jesus. There is no sin that is too great that cannot be washed away by the blood of Christ. And that is the beauty of the gospel. So these two chapters work together, and we have to keep them in mind as we read them both. They show us that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. They show us that the gospel message is intended for everybody without qualification. That the rich need to know Christ, that they cannot save themselves, and the poor... The gospel message is for them as well. The gospel is about bringing in Jews and it's about bringing in Gentiles. It's about bringing in God's people to himself. The gospel is for those who are outwardly moral, who seem great on the outside. And it's for those who are, again, outwardly immoral, where they revel in their sin. All people need a savior. And the saving message of the gospel goes forth without discrimination and calls all of humanity to look to jesus in faith calls everybody to acknowledge our our spiritual bankruptcy to acknowledge that we bring nothing to the table in salvation i love uh right now my my oldest son is two years old and his mind is a sponge Uh, And I've started to to sing hymns to him uh, little by little at night. And now he demands a hymn every time I I put him down. But the first one I taught him is my favorite hymn personally, uh, Rock of Ages. Uh, And I I love verse 3. And uh, verse 3 begins, Of nothing in my hand I bring. And what we always do for that, he says, Put your hand out, Dad. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is what we see in these two chapters in John chapter 3, that every single person needs to confess and acknowledge that, that we bring nothing to our salvation. That we have to look to Jesus in faith that is how we are to approach jesus understanding our nakedness and only he can clothe us and clothe us in righteousness understanding the the foulness of our sin and only he can wash us and cleanse us we have to see and understand that and that those who think that they bring something are just like nicodemus and what they need to see and understand is no if you want to enter into the kingdom of god you must be born again you cannot earn your salvation And I don't know about you, but what gives me so much hope is that that God saves without any qualifications. I think I gain more hope from John chapter 4 than I do from John chapter 3. And knowing that at the lowest of the low, Jesus just says, hey, come as you are. Come to me. You don't have to clean yourself up. Just come. I love what what god wrote in isaiah 55 says seek the lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the lord that he may have compassion on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon in the beginning of that chapter says come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. It's amazing how Isaiah 55 echoes what Jesus spoke to the woman at this well in Sychar, isn't it? The message of God is constant. And I love this and this truth that we also need to To wrestle with for a bit what we see in in these two chapters together that jesus doesn't require us to clean ourselves up before we come to him and that's a that's a very subtle lie that we begin to believe let me let me tell you how that lie plays out first it it plays out in the hearts of unbelievers because as i've shared the gospel with some and, to, and call them to to place their faith in Christ and to turn from their sin. One of the biggest objections is, "Well, you don't know what I've done. God couldn't forgive me for the sins that I have committed." And, and that's that little line. They say, "Well, let me let me go and and begin to to change myself, and then I'll then I'll turn to Christ in faith." And there's two things that are wrong with that. Number one, it has the wrong idea that they can cleanse themselves, that they can take any steps towards God on their own, that they can clean themselves up and make them themselves acceptable to Christ. But then secondly, it also assumes that, that Christ only saves those who clean themselves up. But that is just not the case. Christ says, no, come as you are. Christ calls all sinners to... To leave their sin behind and to look to him in faith. So this mindset of I can't come to Jesus unless I clean myself up, it it plagues unbelievers. They feel like they can't come to to Jesus in their sin. But this subtle mindset also, also plagues our hearts as believers. Let me let me tell you how it does that. Because as we're in the church and we're following Christ, do we still sin? You can give a hearty amen, right? Yes, we still sin. But then, when, when we've been in the church for a little while, what is it we begin to feel about our sin? We're around other Christians, then we begin to say, well, what, what might these other Christians think about me if they see and know about all of my sin? We, we begin to, to say, no, I, I have to clean myself up to really, to really present myself to my fellow Christians i have to clean up my act it's the same exact mindset the unbeliever says i have to clean up my act before i come to christ and we as christians can say i need to clean up my act before i can really be honest with others before i can really be seen and known before i can really come in fellowship to other christians i have to clean myself up and that's a lie because if if we really are are honest again if we We see and understand that the Christian faith is not intended to be lived alone. As I've said in the past, and I'll say it again, in the Christian faith, a lone ranger is a, come on, talk to me, is a a dead ranger. And in my my years in in ministry, I've never come across someone who said, man, I've, I've just gone through this really, really difficult trial, and I'm so glad I kept it a secret. I'm so glad I kept that to myself, and I just walked through that in my own strength. I've never encountered that person. I, I have, I've seen so many occasions where there were deep regrets in, in the lives of God's people because they didn't share the trials and the difficulties that they were going through for so long. They they held it in and they bottled it in, and they said, "I can manage this," or "Let me let me try and fix this on my own," when indeed. We are called to pursue Christ together. Growth and progress really will begin when we are saying, hey, I want to follow Christ and I want to incorporate the church in that. I want to go to others for help, for counsel, for accountability. That's really when, when I've seen so many people begin to grow and for their lives to be changed and transformed. And, and i say that and bring that up and i think it's especially applicable as we begin our growth groups this week as we begin to to come in and have fellowship with one another to meet one another there's initially that temptation to do what to to limit what we share and to present this facade that everything is great and we'll talk more about that facade later on because when jesus presses the woman at the well hey bring your husband what does she say I don't have a husband, right? She she leaves out some other really important details. She sh- she shares some partial truths, right? And then what does Jesus do? He says nope, there's more there. Let's talk about that. And, and he puts his finger right on it. He says, hey, you speak you speak rightly. You 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 have no husband now. You've had five husbands in the past, but now you have a, another man that you're with. Let's talk about that. And then she again tries to. To to change the conversation. I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship now. Where should we worship? What should we do? Changing the subject. But if we do that in our fellowship with one another, what's going to take place in our lives? Not going to be any change. Not going to be any transformation. And what we see here, and one of the, the beauties and the excellencies of Christianity that make it superior. To any other worldviews, that we can come and be honest, first and foremost, with God. And then we can be honest with one another. And as Christians, who are we called to reflect the character of? Christ. So when others come to your group and they, and they share, and, and it just all gets put out on the table, sometimes you're like, oh, that's messy. I don't know if I want to help you clean that up, because I may get, get messy too. Well, that's not what we're called to do. What are we called to do? Man, put the gloves on and get ready to dive in because this is what we are called to follow Christ together. To see that, yeah, we need to, wherever we are in our sin, wherever we are in our faith, Christ will accept us and we need to accept one another wherever we are in our faith. And to be Christ-like towards one another and to help one another along in that. That would be my prayer for our groups this week. There would be places where we can come just as we are, but understand that we are not going to stay just as we are. You can come to group, share those things, but understand we're going to help you move. We're not going to be like, oh, it stinks that you're just right there. Why don't you just stay there? No, it's like, no get up, let's go. Come, walk with me. Let's pursue Christ together. And that's what we see, the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is given without qualification. You don't have to to clean yourself up first. We can follow Jesus right where we are. And following Him and becoming more and more like Him is the best thing that could possibly happen to any of us. Amen? And what we see is that becoming more and more like Him, seeing His superiority, His greatness, that's the third credential that we look and see here in John this morning. Credential number three is that salvation is offered through a superior Savior. So my my second credential is kind of viewed by looking at John chapter 3 and 4 together. And this third credential is really seen in looking at John chapter 2, 3, and 4 together. Because, again, we, we begin to just ask questions of this. And sometimes we lose sight of the, uh, a string of chapters in a given book, and we lose sight of the, the bigger picture of a given book because we kind of get down into the nitty-gritty. We just look at a particular set of verses, but if we, if we were to look at John chapters 2, 3, and 4 together, we see that there's this, there's this string, there's this thread, this theme of water, throughout those three chapters. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, and he goes to the temple. John chapter 3, and speaking to Nicodemus, he says, hey, you must be born again. You must be washed uh, by the water and the Spirit. Uh, born of water and the Spirit. And then in John chapter 4, this whole scene takes place at a well, and it discusses living water. If we were to trace this thread, and additionally, what we, what we see is that in these chapters, we have these Old Testament institutions and these Old Testament promises that if you were a Jew reading this in the first century, you would realize, like, oh, these are major things in our culture. Now, for us, they're like, these are just stories. But for a first century Jew, like, these are major Jewish institutions that Jesus is taking and turning on their head. And in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus turning water into wine, he, he does that in rich, the purification jars that are intended to hold water for cleansing. So Jesus says, in essence, once you put wine in them, you can't use those anymore for cleansing. Right? They're kind of done. And I think that's part of the point of what Jesus is, is doing there. Hey, the, those cleansing rituals, you don't need them anymore. And then Jesus goes up to the temple and, and he speaks uh, to the Pharisees, cleans that out. And he says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it. And initially everyone's confused. They're like, what is he talking about? It took 40 years to build this temple. And says so the disciples later on realized that he was talking about himself. That Jesus is saying, no, he's the new temple. And if you think about what a temple is, the temple was a, a location where you went to worship God, to be in his presence. And Jesus is saying, now you don't do that. You come to me if you want to worship God. And then John chapter 3, the rabbi, the teacher in Israel comes and he speaks to, to Jesus. And Jesus ends up teaching the teacher. This, this institution in Judaism of the rabbi, Jesus is saying, yeah, I, I supersede all of that. I'm superior to all of your rabbis. I'll teach all of them. I'll show them what they do not understand. And then here we have John chapter 4. And it's great because, because the Samaritan woman asked this question, right? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the answer is, yes. Absolutely, he is greater than your father Jacob. He is greater than the common ancestor that the Samaritans and the Jews have. Jacob, what type of water did he bring forth in that well? He, he said, "Hey, I'm going to tap into water that's already existing." And I'll find it here, but what does Jesus say? What kind of water does He promise? Living water. And he who drinks it will never thirst again. And all of these things, we see the superiority of Christ. We see His excellence, His greatness. And so as we, we're going to continue our study of John chapter four in the coming weeks, there's a lot of small takeaways from this, this chapter. One of the things that will that will come about, and you know, a lot of times I've you know reading commentaries and listening to sermons on John chapter four, I've I've heard, uh, and again, I've, these are good points. This is this is a great example of what it looks like to be an evangelist. And said, hey, absolutely, Jesus sharing the gospel with this Samaritan woman, a perfect. If you want to learn how to share the gospel, learn from Jesus. Uh, but that's not the main point. We've also seen that, you know, this is, this is Jesus uh, showing honor and dignity and respect to women in a way that nobody else has in the past. And I say, yes, that is absolutely true in this passage. We see Jesus uh, breaking from cultural norms and honoring women, but that's not the main point here. We also have, you know, seen and heard of it. And this is all about crossing cultural barriers. Uh, And Jesus is is not going with what the culture says. He's just doing his own thing. And that's what we have to do. He's like, well, that's, that's not it either. What this chapter, what indeed the whole book of John is about, the reason all of these conversations have been given to us, so that we would behold the glory and the excellence of Christ. That is what John is writing to do. He's writing to convince us persuade first century jews and now he's writing to to persuade and convince us as well and so when we when we look to this chapter that's what we need to see and keep in mind That we're not looking at all of the other characters we're looking and beholding at jesus it's the one who gives life he's the one that we are called to worship he is the reason that first century jews should leave behind their spiritual bank, spiritually bankrupt Judaism. And the greatness and the glory of Christ that we see here in John chapter 4 is why we should leave everything else behind in this world. The greatness and the glory of Christ is also why we should go and proclaim who He is to others. What does the Samaritan woman do? When she's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, what does she do? She drops her her bucket and goes into the town let me tell you about this man that i just met i think he's the christ i think you need to come know him what we see again if this isn't a this isn't a how-to message this is a who is message this is a come look and behold jesus be convinced of who he is of his greatness of his glory and then Marvel at it and then go and proclaim it to others. That's what we're called to do at this first little portion of it. Looking and seeing the greatness of Christ. And the greatness of Christianity. It's far superior because we have a superior Savior. We have a sovereign God. And we have a God who promises to save without qualification. He says, come as you are and I'll cleanse you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for your sovereign plan to save us. Lord, that you have uh, worked to save each and every one of us in the same way that you even worked to save the Samaritan woman uh, and the people of the town of Sychar. And Lord, I want to just thank you and, and worship you for being sovereign, for being in control, for being the one who saves. And Lord, I thank you that we don't have to, to wash ourselves for that. I thank you that you are the one who does the washing. That you cleanse us. You make us holy and, and blameless and above reproach in your eyes. Not because of who we are, but because of what your Son has done and because of who he is. And Lord, I pray that that we would meditate and contemplate those things about Jesus, that we would see his supremacy, see his excellence, and that you he would help us to be those who worship you in spirit and in truth, following our Lord, following our Savior, each and every day of our lives. And Lord, help us to do that in fellowship, in community with one another. May you sanctify us as a church so that we would be a people who is holy and zealous for good works and use this uh, just as an encouragement to one another. Lord, bless our groups as they start this week and may they be profitable this year in sanctifying us as an instrument as a tool in your hand with your word and with your spirit to make us more and more like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.